0: Well, what's good, First Church? It's great to be back with you guys. I hope you guys had a great week online. Jasper County Jail Hebron and demont Wheatfield. good to be here with you guys. Um, I'm so glad to be back from vacation. Last week, Pastor Sam Hamstra brought a totally awesome message. He did a marvelous job. I miss you guys. I went to church in Minnesota, and uh, it was a great church. But it wasn't First Church, telling you that right now. And uh, no matter what your background is, uh, you know whether it's your first time, your first time in a long time, uh, church is a place where no one's perfect and everyone's welcome, and we're here to find purpose, hope, meaning, and new life in Christ. We're in a brand new teaching series called Why Are There So Many Churches? And uh, I wanna talk about churches, why there's so many. I think for everyone, Christian or non, there's gonna be a super valuable message series. And this week, as is often the case, I'm just laying out the chips and salsa, just an appetizer. Next week, main course. Next week's going to be really good. Um, I've got an important, important message next week. This week, also good. Um, third week's going to be terrible. No, just kidding. Third week will be fine, too. But today, initially, I want to talk about how do you know if a church is real, godly? I think there are some great churches. There's also some fake churches, churches that have drifted out of um, I think God's word and God's truth. And how do you know that's happening? How do you see the difference between a real church and a false church? What we're gonna do today is lay down a core analogy with a story. And then we're gonna look at some Bible in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles with me if you'd like. Uh, we're gonna be going through it verse by verse, that specific passage, studying it very closely. And then I'm gonna make some points. And uh, they're gonna be good points. If you're a note taker, you can take notes. If you're not a note taker, you can you know, ask your wife to do it. Whatever you do, whatever works for you, it's all good. But uh, for vacation, we visited my wife's sister, and brother-in-law in in northern northern Minnesota. It was an awesome trip. We drove way north of Duluth, Minnesota, just south of Canada in my Suburban 2003 Suburban with way over a quarter million miles on it. I put the title in the glove box because that's how confident I was that we were going to make it. I was like, just in case we need to abandon ship, let's just put the title in there so I can send her to the scrapyard. You know what I mean? But we made it. Sometimes when she got hot, she gets stuck in second gear, and I just rev her up to 4,500 and wham, straight to fourth. So, anyway. Um My kids wrote down every license plate that we saw. It was like a big thing, right? We wanted the kids, give me that lock shot there. Well, that appears really great on screen. But anyway, every single license plate that they found, including Hawaii and Alaska. We saw Hawaii and Alaska, but we couldn't find some of the other ones. We found like 36 license plates. That made it fun. And uh, we don't do the TVs and the cars. Obviously, the Suburbans pre-TV screen, so they just had to sit there and watch things. Old school. It's amazing to me how different states really are and uh, in Minnesota, I took a picture of a gas station shelf. Put up that gas station shelf picture right there. Notice they've got some really Minnesota things. Hilariously, all the, every gas station had boat throwable cushions, you know, in the boat. And they make great canoe seats up there in Minnesota, campfire seats, uh, you know, couch throw cushions. If you're really classy, you can put some of those boat throwables there. And also, if you're a real camper, you know these are hemorrhoid seats because if you camp a lot and you're using sphagnum moss to take care of business down there, you need, you need, you need something. But what I find really funny, zoom in on that, on that orange helmet right there, zoom in on that, look at, look, look at that. That, at a gas station, and this is very common at gas stations in Minnesota, is a chainsaw mask with ear covers. You know, and that helmet, you find it all the time. I want you to leave that up there for a second because what happens is when you pull up to the cabin up north in Minnesota, you know, and cabins, anything north of the Twin Cities, that's a cabin up north is what we say. In the old Subaru, you know, because that's whatever, Subaru with your global warmings, no joke, and your Bernie sticker, right? You pull up there in Minnesota to the cabin. There are trucks, but not many. Usually it's just all, you know, Toyotas and Subarus. Often when you pull into the driveway in northern Minnesota, you're going to see some down cedars, some giant red pine in the driveway so you stop by the old gas station and you buy the chainsaw mask notice they don't carry any chainsaws they just carry the chainsaw mask and here's why here's why this is critical you need to understand minnesota culture when you buy that mask naturally some minnesota nice old fella is gonna say oh did you have a tree down? I've got a 24 inch steel in my Subaru trunk. You want to borrow it? You don't need to bring it with you. You buy the mask. It's like waving a flag. Come help me. So they'll come out and, hey, I brought two chainsaws. I got two chainsaws in my trunk. I'll help you. I got the 24 incher and the 20 inch. Fire it up. Let's do it together. So different. So different. Gas stations are, I mean, and every gas station in Minnesota, has like five live bait tubs in there. My kids are like, look at the fish. I'm like, look at all the dead ones. You know what I mean? Cause they're always like a ton of dead minnows in there. Anyway, in Indiana, you know what my brother-in-law really wants in Indiana? Like this is a confection, you can't get this in Minnesota. He wants the double-decker oatmeal cream pie. You ever had one of those tasty licks right there? He's like, give me that, we bought a whole box for Tim. He wanted those, he couldn't get those. They don't sell that in Minnesota. In Minnesota, if you want a snack at a gas station, it's all gluten-free, lactose-free, THC pot brownies. And that's what they have in Minnesota, for real. Right at eye level. Like for the kids, you know, they got cartoons on there. I'm like, you know, Minnesota people eat, oh, that one's a little spicy there. Got a lot going on. I'm getting real hungry for some more. It's crazy. Everywhere, I got to talk to my kids about sober-mindedness now, you know? What what does 11 milligrams of THC mean, Dad? It's like, stop. We're leaving the state. It's terrible. (laughs) Minnesota lakes. I didn't intend that to be as funny as it was, but it is is funny, I guess. It's literally what they have. I I couldn't believe it. But Minnesota lakes, full of kayakers, canoes, paddle boars, Paddle boards. And, and the big thing that they have in Minnesota, they don't have big boats. They have Lund Tiller Steer 99 Roods on the back of little Luma Craft putt-putts. You know, so you take it out on the lake, go fishing. My brother-in-law's lake, 2,300 acres, 100 houses total on this big, giant lake. Not a single wakeboard boat. Not a wakeboard rack, nothing. Just all your fishing boats, that's it. Indiana le- lakes, what do we have? Jet skis, tri bass boats, and lots of Trump 2024 flags. Packed full, two hundred thousand dollar wake boats. Where does this money come from? Like, who can afford? How is that a sentence? Two hundred thousand dollar wakeboard boat. Like, how? Who? Why? Most docks in Indiana. Two, three, four different boat lifts, and there ain't no Tiller Steer 99 nine horse, there's a 300 horse Verado Mercury racing engine on the back of my Tritune, on the back of my Barletta. You, know, you see those things flying by, it's 70 miles an hour, you know, full of people, their faces in the wind like this, you know, music blaring, a little bit of Kesha going, I mean, it's like, what in the world? Who does this? Who plays that? Where? Why? Do you need to go 70 miles an hour in a Barletta tri-tune? But what's amazing to me is that we have such different cultures in different states, we're all part of the same country. You gotta think about that, I mean, how different, we're citizens of the United States, but we are radically different. And some of the differences are cultural, obviously the food choices, the political choices, the car brands, some are created by geography, the chainsaw masks, you know, the, the boat cushions, the mosquito spray, oh, I didn't even talk about that. We're in the middle of the lake. I'm like, let's go for a slow cruise, Tim, in his boat. He's like, oh, we can't slow down or the deer flies will get us. In August, in the middle of the lake? He's like, yeah, yeah, they're bad. We did. I said, slow down, let me see. Like 30 deer flies just just going after my dark hair, you know? I mean, it was crazy. They are racist, those deer flies. They like my dark hair. (laughs) What makes all our states American is the Constitution, isn't it? These are the basic agreements that we've made to live together. Our original Constitution laid out our government structure, our manifesto, and then our amendments over time give us different rights. The right to free speech, the right to bear arms. The abolition of slavery, the abolition of alcohol, the abolition of the abolition of alcohol, ironically. Constitution, is imperfect as it is, is what binds our union together. Different cultures, different identities, different geographies, different physical realities, one union. People ask sometimes, especially when they come and visit, when we had, you know, Japanese exchange students, whatever, why are there so many states? Why are there 50 states? I'll tell you why. It's because we have a big country. It's a big country with a lot of different needs. If we had one state, two states in this giant nation, wouldn't be very effective. The government of California can barely govern. They've got huge problems because we have a huge state that doesn't meet the needs of its people individually. Similarly, generally, there's a lot of different churches because there's a lot of different people. And unlike the United States, Jesus has a scope that's much larger than the United States. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world, the world, God's movement is to care for the whole world and he created the church to care for the world. The Greek word for church is ekklesia and literally it means gathering, gathering. That's what church means, literally. Sometimes people ask me, pastor, why do I have to go to a building to do church? Can't I just do church alone? And no, you cannot. By definition, church is a gathering of believers. At its minimum, the church of Jesus is a gathering of Jesus followers who get together to learn about and follow Jesus Better. Typically, they learned from an apostle, biblical era, those are people who had firsthand knowledge of Jesus, they knew Jesus, Um, or people who teach from scripture, those are pastors. Just like the United States has many states to meet the needs of many cultures and geographies, the global church has many churches because there's many different groups of Christians from different backgrounds, contexts. Initially, part of the reason there are so many churches, too, is it was difficult to build a building that could house more than a few hundred people or hold more than a few hundred people because of a variety of different reasons. Usually it was wood structures, fire hazards were really big. Um, Obviously our hearts go out to the people of Hawaii and Maui who are dealing with that right now. Um, But that was a major issue, was building large buildings. So when a church got too large, they would just build a second building. In fact, that was part of why we did Hebrew. We looked at building a 1,500 seat auditorium in DeMott Wheatfield and it was prohibitively expensive. And we thought, man, for a fraction of the cost, we can keep using what we have and we can build a second building in Hebron. And that's what we did. There's a church in between our two buildings called American Reformed. It was split off of this church 100 years ago because they wanted to do services in English and we still wanted to do services in Dutch at that time. It was a different cultural need, very understandable. Churches have different music styles and lengths of service. In Malawi, Africa, services can last two hours of singing just of music before the message. Then the message is an hour and a half, two hours long. Then another hour and a half, two hours of music. Church can be six hours long sometime. And all you guys are like, praise God, that is not the case. Oh my goodness, that would be really long. But culturally there, that's acceptable. Some churches preach sermons verse by verse, specifically through a specific book of the Bible, in order always. Some churches only do topical messages. We do a blend of both. It's all cultural and it's all good. In Miami, most of the early church services start at 10 a.m. because they like to party. Kay? 10 a.m. is their early service. Noon is their main service time in Miami. That's remarkable. Most churches are like states, parts of the same country essentially, designed to meet the individual and unique needs of the culture and context that they're in. Now our country, the United States, has a constitution that helps make a state a state. What makes a Christian church a Christian church? Does Christianity have a constitution of sorts? And the answer is yes, it's not called a constitution. But I think in general, we have a clear set of core values outlined in the Bible in multiple different ways and places that pretty clearly define what makes a Christian church real and true. Today, I want to look at a story in the Bible that sort of outlines our constitution of faith. As I mentioned before, it comes from Luke chapter 23. Verses 39 through 43, this story is often overlooked because of the greater story that's within it. It is after Jesus has been crucified and is hanging, dying on a cross. It's very emotional. A lot of people try to fly over this part of the Bible because it's, it's very sad, to be honest. But as was often the case in the Greco-Roman world of antiquity, people were crucified in groups because so many people received the death penalty. It was a brutal culture, society, and existence Jesus is being crucified one afternoon on a Friday with three or two other people, three people total. And uh, the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left who were dying, took different strategies in interacting with Jesus. One of the criminals mocks Jesus, the other one ends up choosing to follow Jesus as leader and forgiver and ends up dying and going to heaven hours before he dies. And I think if there was ever a basic understanding of what is the least I need to do to become a Christian or for a church to be a church. This is it. This is like, this is the bare minimum. Verse 39, it starts off saying, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Us too while you're at it. This guy has a pretty simple strategy. Um, A couple weeks ago, there's a lady that's a good friend of of ours and uh, she had this boy, she's a single girl, and and she had this, this guy who had kind of crush on her, right? And uh, he was trying to flirt with her and get her attention all summer long. And she was very disinterested in him. And uh, eventually, he found out that she was formerly a KV tennis champion. And so he looks at her and he's like, I bet I could crush you in tennis, even though I've never played. And she was like, I will kill you, right? And so then she played him and she did. She smoked him, but he took her on a date and bought her ice cream afterwards. And that's how he did it, right? Same strategy that the criminal's taking right here. He's looking at Jesus saying, I bet you can't. And Jesus, you know, isn't like this lady. He's like, I'm not gonna take the bait. The other criminal had different strategy. It says, but the other criminal protested. Now this is absolutely critical. The other criminal is about to lay down the basics of our faith, This is like the bare minimum that you need for the constitution of our faith. And what is going to be contained in these next verses are five tenets that are core to being a Christian, to following Jesus. And the first one says, don't you fear God? And the first standard here is fearing the eternal God of the universe. And fear is kind of an old word in this context. But what it means, and this is a big deal, is deep, life-changing respect, honor, and submission to whatever we fear. And this is a huge deal. If a church doesn't have a fear of God, a deep, life-changing respect, honor, and submission, it's not a church. And if a Christian doesn't have this, they're not a Christian. Do you fear God? Does our church have a fear of the Lord, an understanding he is the God of the universe, the authority over all, right? Don't you fear God, even when you've been sentenced to die, standard number two, understanding that this life will come to an end. This is such a big deal. You know, if we weren't gonna die, why would we come to church? If we just live forever, We just, you know, keep building up our lives, getting newer wakeboard boats, you know, having fun, going whatever. But death is this critical problem that we need to address. And God came to address the problem of death. He removes the victory of death, the sting of death. And if a church doesn't talk about the problem of death, it's not really a church. And if a Christian doesn't really think about how God came to address this fundamental issue, what happens when you die, where do you go after you die, it's not a church. Even when we've been sentenced to die, and then verse 41, this is critical, point number three, we deserve to die for our crimes. We deserve, and the key word here is deserve to die for our crimes. See, this criminal is admitting, we have sinned against God's standard, and we must repent. The criminal recognizes his sins are not just against people, but against God. He's referencing not just physical death here, he's talking about a spiritual death. The biblical definition of spiritual death is separation from God. You can't be with God when you have sin in your life. If you claim to be a Christian and you say, well, I'm a good person, you know, and God's gonna accept me because I'm a good person, you're missing the point. I mean, the point of Christianity is that we fall short and there's nothing we can do about it. We have sinned against God and against people. We're separated from God. And if a church doesn't preach this, it's not a church. Okay, we've sinned against God, but this man hasn't done anything What he's doing here, point number four that's critical, is he's admitting that Jesus lived a sinless life. There's something unique about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He has not sinned. He does not deserve to die. He is able to, as an innocent person being crucified, offer grace to others. This is a huge deal. If a church doesn't talk about the deity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, it's not a church. Then he goes on and he says, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what he's doing here is he's asking Jesus to forgive him is the, only, is the only way. Saying, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. You're sinless. I need your grace in my life. He's calling on the name of Jesus to save him is the only way. And this is what makes a Christian a Christian and a church a church. It's one of five basic tenets that are core to what a church is. And I love the way that Jesus responds in verse 43. It says, and Jesus replied, I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. Hey, guess what? You're a Christian. You're going to heaven when you die. Pretty cool. Those are the five points that are the basis of our faith. And a church is a place where people gather together to learn about and worship Jesus and find salvation in him. And this means five things. Fearing the God of the Bible, understanding that this life is going to end, that we're gonna die, understanding that we have sinned against God's standard and must repent, believing that Jesus lived a sinless life and asking Jesus to forgive our sins is the only way. Those are the basics of our faith. Now I would add one more, a sixth one, and that is believe the story of God revealed to us in the Bible. And I could go into that much much more. But I think the Bible is the complete, sufficient, final authority and guide for the church. But I think these six general basics are sort of the foundation of the church. If a church has these six things present, present, it's more than likely it's probably in the country of Christianity. It's within the boundaries of being a good church. Now there's obviously more to America than its constitution, and there's more to Christianity than these six things. But I think it's a great starting place to sit down and really think, hey, are we in the same faith? Are we in the same religion? Do we believe generally the same things? And churches, I think, especially recently, have begun to violate the boundaries of our constitution of faith. I've seen a lot of churches move outside of the country of Christianity and become a new thing, a different thing. And I wanna list some of those ways that that's been happening. And what I'm gonna do is list three ways that I think we're violating the boundaries of what God calls Christianity This is by no means a comprehensive list, but you might find this helpful, Christian or not. I think it's helpful to really um, put these definitions in place, and the first way that I see this happening is number one, by not believing that we're sinners who fall short of God's standard. I think what happens is we really start to focus on the grace of God without also balancing that out by looking at the truth of God in our life. We just start to say, well, God will just forgive me. It's good, I can do whatever I want. Early in my ministry career, I worked at a church where they were toying with this constantly. They loved to talk about grace, didn't like to talk about repentance. And I think we thought that because of God's grace, we could basically do whatever we wanted and act like the world. And I remember on a church staff retreat, we went to uh, the river um, in Minnesota and had a great time, you know, swimming and playing all day. And then at night, people just started partying. Bonfire got lit and everybody was drinking around the bonfire and Chris and I said, we, we don't want anything to do with this, we're going to bed. But the next morning I woke up long before anyone else, obviously, and I went to the fire pit and saw literally, I would say, at least 100 bottles and party debris around the fire. And I thought, how does this reflect our new life in Christ? How does this reflect God himself living inside of us? We have to turn from sin out of gratitude to Christ. God calls us not to live in a state of drunkenness. And I'm not saying drinking in moderation is wrong, but getting drunk is part of life that we're called to leave. And I think we were missing that I think far and away the biggest area churches are leaving the country of faith is essentially by saying, you don't have to turn from sin to become a Christian. You don't have to repent. You can just keep doing what you're doing. Sometimes it feels like we've added an 11th commandment to the 10 commandments, which is just be nice, be nice. And it's replaced all the other commandments. Just be nice. Don't talk about awkward things. Just be nice, just be nice. Don't love people enough to call them from a life that is hurtful and destructive. Just be nice. Many churches do not call people to radical life change in following Jesus, and I would say that's a deal breaker for Christianity and the Christian church. In many ways, I think that's what made progressive Christianity. Believe God exists, but sin doesn't really matter. Just believe in God, but don't change anything. If you're not changed, I don't think God's alive inside of you. He changes the way that we live. God calls us, or calls sin, sin, because it leads to lower levels of life satisfaction and it hurts people and it stops human flourishing. I think it's pretty clear from our social experiment with progressivism that sin hurts people in our community. Just talk to teachers. uh, One of the sad and interesting facts about the modern era is we raised a whole generation or we're raising a whole generation of children where many parents essentially look at kids and say, I'm never going to call out sin in your life. I'm never going to stop you from doing destructive things. You just do you. You talk to teachers, it's like, yeah, it's horrible. Like, we hate it. Like, our life is really, really, really hard right now. I mean, to have completely undisciplined kids who essentially are not called to turn from sin in their life, it makes... Society painful. You look at schools, which are a representation of the future of our society. It's like, man, this is this is hard. If a church doesn't call people from sin, it's um it's a fake church. It's fake church. Second area I see people leaving the boundaries of the country of Christianity is erasing the purpose of the church. This is a huge deal. I remember um, a part of my life in church, and this is just easy to have happen. Is um, church becomes a movement of doing good things. You know, you just get together. And you talk about theology a little, and you leave. And if an alien came and compared the church to a Lions Club, a Rotary Club, a Shriners, it would be really tough to see the difference materially. Right, a country club that gathers, a social justice club that gathers is not the purpose of the church. And these are not bad things, they're good things. The church has been the primary locus of racial reconciliation worldwide, worldwide, always has been. The church has been by far the most significant advocate of fighting global poverty worldwide, forever. And these are good things. I'm not saying they're bad things. I'm not saying the church should stop doing these things. They're just not the main thing. The purpose of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 makes it so clear. It's to build God's kingdom and nation by making disciples of Jesus. We're not just here doing service projects. We're giving people eternity in heaven with Jesus. We're removing the sting of death and we're showing people the way of love and forgiveness through Christ. There is no greater good ever, period. There's no greater purpose in life than making disciples of Jesus Christ. And today, maybe you've seen this, but I see the church's purpose getting hijacked by people who allow good things to become God things. And this is critical, and I want you to lean into this. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. How many people in life, they take maybe their spouse, who is a good thing, and they start to worship that person, root their identity in that person, become needy and clinging to that person, all of a sudden a good thing becomes a God thing, And then it becomes a bad thing. You don't give me enough time. I'm jealous. I'm angry. Friendships, whatever. So many different things in our life. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Listen, social justice has been a good thing in different contexts. Racial reconciliation can be a good thing. Caring for the poor or women's rights or men's rights can be a good thing. The church has always led the best charge in these areas. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And I think subtly over time what happens in different contexts, different ages, different stages, the church has allowed good things to become God things. And when you make a good thing that isn't God, when you make it God, it's gonna disappoint you because it's a fake God. And when you root your identity in something that you really think is gonna define you, it's gonna, it's gonna you know, bring life to you and it doesn't, and that's what idol stands for, it doesn't offer life, it's a false God, it's gonna make you mad. It's gonna disappoint you. And I think this is one of the things that's really hurt the church in general is we've put, removed God from the throne. We put false gods on the throne. People come and they get disappointed because they're not finding life in church. The third area I see churches walking outside the boundaries of the country of Christianity is forgetting that grace saves us. And this is sort of the opposite of the first one. This is instead of only talking about grace, we only talk about truth, about how we need to turn from sin. This one is commonly called legalism. Many people forget that the criminal on the cross didn't save himself, he relied on the grace of Jesus. And I think that sometimes churches start to focus on our own actions. If I do enough things, if I wear the right clothes, if I read the right things, if I say enough prayers and watch the right stuff, God's gonna accept me. God doesn't accept us because of what we do. He accepts us because Jesus died in our place. And like the criminal on the cross, we must admit there's nothing we can do. We need God's grace to save us. Our actions after that moment, after you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life, your actions are an act of gratitude as a result of God's transformation, but your actions don't save you. Many times I see new Christians in particular, they come from a pretty rebellious life And it's very tempting to fall into legalism. The structure feels really good from the unstructure, the previous unstructure of your life. It's not wrong to transform your life. It's not wrong to be transformed um, in following Jesus. But what makes us right with God is God's grace, not our actions. Isaiah 64, six puts it this way. We're all sin infected, sin contaminated. Our best efforts are like grease stained rags. Imagine cleaning a window with a grease stained rag. The other day, um, my son and his little sister, they're five and seven, um, they, they made a big mess. They spilled a whole party bag of like Ruffles potato chips, which is just, it's a long story how it happened and uh, you know, just presume that my house is a madhouse because that's what it is, right? And so pulling on it, bad things, and what I appreciated is they both looked at me like they were going to die and I was like, good, you should, you have messed up. Okay? And um, they knew that they needed to clean up. And it's funny, because they were fighting, but all of a sudden, they're scared, and they're like cleaning. They're like cleaning up. And I want you to imagine two raccoons trying to clean up a party bag of spilled Ruffles potato chips. They're not doing good. It's just getting put under the couch. I mean, nothing good's happening here. Um, They're cleaning. Now, here's the thing. As their father, I actually appreciated that they were cleaning, not because of the act of cleaning, but because they had penitent hearts. Right, it was really good. I appreciated it. Like they're working together instead of being adversarial to one another. They're loving one another. They're working together. They're trying to fix the mess. I let it go for a little bit, right? I appreciated that. Now, if my son had been looking at my daughter and been like, "You're doing it all wrong. You're terrible. I'm doing it the right way. You're doing it the wrong way." Listen, you're both five and seven. You're both doing a terrible job. Like it's awful. Okay, the only reason I like you doing this is because your heart is good. Listen, our good actions. It's about the heart. And if you're doing all these right things with a bad heart, God doesn't like it. We're saved by grace through faith and our actions are an act of gratitude for the grace that God has given to us. Churches that focus on actions in place of God's grace do not please God. And I think it's so easy to fall into this fire and brimstone legalism on the other side of the coin. Right, and it's a balance of both, grace and truth. Problem number one is just the other side of the coin A problem number three. Those are the three ways I see churches walking outside the boundaries of faith. You know, I used to give a talk like this, and this is what I'd always say. I'd say, you know what, here's the thing about churches is, you know, all churches have different methods, but the same message. It's all good. And I'd still say to a certain extent that's true, but today that's changing. I think many, maybe even most churches fall within the country of Christianity, but there is a sort of civil war brewing within the Christian church about who we're going to be. I think a talk like this is really, really critical. You know, as your kids grow and move away, I think it's critical to teach them to identify, hey, what makes this church solid? I think the church is pointless. if We're just a country club, alliance club, a Shriners club, gathering together to buy some toys, do some service projects, and do some good causes. It's fine. It's okay. But church is more than a nice cause. We're hope, life, and eternity. It's the purpose of our existence. The church of Jesus is the answer to everything removes the sting of death and the victory of death and gives us hope, peace, and a purpose. You know, I think about the criminal on the cross who saw death and his sin and saw Jesus' innocence and asked for salvation, and I think that's who the church needs to always be. I never wanna lose that. You know, I was writing this message. I thought about my friends Bart and Raquel. And uh, three years ago, they started coming to our church broken and hurting families falling apart living in unstable lives full of broken heart and loneliness and at our church through jesus they learned to receive forgiveness and admit fault bart rededicated his life to christ and raquel found a personal relationship with jesus for the very first time in her life and god healed their souls and healed their broken hearts and healed relationships And as they followed Jesus, they left their lives of sin. I got to do their wedding in our Generations Room. They serve and they bring and they talk friends into following Jesus and getting married. And in three weeks, they'll be making profession at our churches. After years of following Jesus faithfully, and it was because of Jesus Christ and his grace through our church. That's who we are. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I am so proud of Bart and Raquel. And really, I'm just proud of Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that he gave us his church Only the church heals hurts and breaks down barriers and gives us hope and creates reconciliation and gives us second chances and erases cancel culture and creates opportunity and paves the way for forgiveness and calls people to the best life. And today I wanna ask you, I think a very important question and you know, you can scan your blue cards Uh, There's a QR code on your blue card that will lead you to our discussion questions. But I really want you to think about this. I hope that you actually do. This week's are kind of really important. Um, But are you in God's nation of faith? Critical question. Do you, you know, I think it's good to evaluate a church like, hey, is this church, whatever. But I want to know, are you personally, are you personally living a life? Because, you know, oh, I don't like that church. I'm gonna leave that because this and whatever. And they're becoming, you know, progressive or they're becoming too conservative or whatever it is. I want you to evaluate your life, your family, your children, your heart. Are you living in God's nation of faith? Do you fear Do you fear the God of the Bible? Life-changing respect, honor, and submission in your life. I think many of us do not. You look at your life in church versus out, it's like basically you come and are no different and indistinguishable from the world around you. Do you fear the God of the Bible? Do you understand this life will end? Everybody's gonna die. I say it all the time. The death rate in America hovers right around 100%. Life is very fatal for everyone. Do you admit that you sin against God's standard and must repent? Do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? Have you asked Jesus to forgive you as the only way? When, when, when have you done that? Are you new in Christ? Do you believe that the Bible is a final, sufficient, complete authority for all manners? I want you to talk about why or why not. I want you to really think about it, assess it in your life. Do you believe this? And if not, are you willing to? Why not today make a decision? I have decided to follow Jesus Christ. I look at the world and I don't want to go the way the world is going. Nobody looks at America or the world for that matter today and says, you know what, it's really working. Like it's just, it's great. We need a better way and Jesus is that better way. Today I look at America, I see lots of people who are far more concerned about their personal needs and agenda And far more states that are focused on themselves and don't care about our nation and our union. And you know, it's heartbreaking to watch a great nation like America crumble. It is. And I care about that. But I care about that far, far less than I care about the flag of our faith. And today I see something similar happening in our churches. Individuals and churches that fight for themselves ahead of the nation of Jesus in a fear of God and his kingdom. And today I'm asking you to help rebuild our movement. I'm tired of hearing people say, and this is is what people say. Pastor, I love what you're doing at your church. What do you mean my church? You go here. This is our church. We're building this together. Become an owner. Plant your family's flag in the sand on our beaches and say, we're going to build this together. It's metaphorical. I wish we had beaches. We don't. But plant your family's flag here and say, let's do this. I'm in this for thick and thin, generation after generation. Pastors come and go, but a church is for the generations, for the community. I'm tired of seeing churches close and become fine art centers and whatever else they become. I want to see more churches, not less. Let's open more of them. I want to start more first churches all around us. But not just first churches. I want to see every church thrive and prosper in the name of Jesus. Let's build new ones. Let's make great, positive, Christ-centered headlines. Families finding hope, healing, and purpose instead of reading the bad news bears and be like, oh my goodness, what's happening in the world today? I want us to write our own headlines in the name of Jesus. Good news. The gospel in the Bible, the gospel means good news, good news. We have good news. On all your seats, you have a blue card. Okay, it's your note sheet. and It's a blue card. We call it the blue card on all your seats. In Hebrew, you have them too. Listen, I want you to build God's nation and kingdom with us. I want you to commit, check any box on that blue card, join a life group, get re-engaged with the church instead of just coming and sitting saying, yeah, you know, whatever, that's good. You know, that pastor gave something interesting. I want you to be a part of the greatest movement on earth. I want you to stop saying, I like that church and start saying, I love my church. This is mine, I'm an owner, I'm building it. Serve, give, transform, add something to your life. I'm tired of us saying, oh, can you believe it's fall already? Can you believe the year? Can you believe the kids are going back to school already? Can you believe this, whatever? I want us to say, I'm building an eternal legacy in the name of Jesus Christ. It's all that matters. This life is gonna go by in a flash. Let's live for what matters most. To me, you know, this series is called Why Are There So Many Churches? And to me, that's the wrong question. I think we should be asking, why aren't there more churches? If every person in our community was reached by the gospel of Jesus, we would be totally we would have huge problems. I want us to prepare for the harvest and the revival. I want us to continue to build God's kingdom. It's time for God's people to address that. Can't wait for the rest of this series. and the upcoming weeks, I've got some really important stuff. We're going to get really nitty-gritty into details. It'll be good and helpful. As we close, please stand to your feet at all locations, and let's have a prayer. God in heaven, I thank you for your church. This is the greatest hope in the world. God, no matter where we're at in life, we just acknowledge your church has been the locus of healing for society for thousands of years. We thank you for the way you've ended slavery, created modern medicine, hospitals, orphanages, schools, education for all. You are the one who did it. Your followers are the one that did it, that brought civilization to the world. We thank you for your church and the blessings that have come from it, but it's not just those things, Lord. Most of all, we thank you for salvation that comes from you preached at your churches. And today, Lord, help us to live a life that loves your church, that fears your word, that recognizes eternity is real. God, I ask that through this message and through this series, you would transform our hearts and give us a passion to build your ecclesia, your gathering, your churches together. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together.